And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch. From growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. What's going on, man? I'm ready to hustle. I'm failing away, buddy. Just like I am the captain of the fail boat. I'm just, I, I can't win. I can't win. I'm going to let you do all the failing and I'm going to do all the winning. That's fine. But I, I mean, it's just like one after another. And I feel like there's some pattern to this now. Brought some people in, got some experts. Before we get into that, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Now back to my personal, professional, and maybe physical failures on some days. We're going to talk about the professional version. Uh, I've got experts, Matt. How much time do we have here? Do we have enough time to cover all this? (laughs) Probably not, but we'll, we'll try. So... Once again, experts. So with us today, I got Kim and Todd Saxton, the authors of Titanic Effect. They are also professors at the Kelly School of Business, which is affiliated with Indiana University and also the fifth college that I dropped out of. Um, Now, for those of you not familiar with Kelly, this is an Ivy League quality business school. Um, In my book, Million Dollar Bedroom, I refer to it as Indiana's prize possession when it comes to education and value. Um, I was just so impressed when I went there and it was so effective that I had many of the ideas that turned into the subject matter in Million Dollar Bedroom, which has evolved into full scale. Um, So welcome, Saxton's, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thanks so much, Matt. We appreciate being here and and the plug for Kelly. Uh, and I think particularly appreciate being introduced as experts on failing. Uh, and and we'll hope to live up to that uh, to our the best of our inability. <laughs> we like. Hey, hang on, let me read. We're, we're, we're concerned about the amount of time. We experts on failure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're, con- we're concerned about how much time you have. So. <laughs> We we can talk about failure all day and and why is that important you know Matt and I was joking I'm I everybody fails a lot all the time especially the most successful people you know and when Matt and I went to start startup hustle we really wanted to be focal on the reality the ups and downs and the failure aspect of startups and the only way you it's learn hard. It's, yeah it's hard and and you know the thing is is we've both been successful but the things that we've done, they're not necessarily repeatable or duplicatable. They are on some levels, but the failures we went through are easy lessons to help you avoid pitfalls and the things that you can fall down. So, I mean, would you agree, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like all things in life, be it parenting or anything else, right? I mean, some of these things you just don't understand until you go through them. And then sometimes other people tell you like, don't let your kids do X, Y, Z. Like this would be a huge failure. And you're like, yeah, whatever. I'm gonna do whatever I want. And then you figure out, yeah, they were right. I shouldn't have done that. It was a failure. A sharp 
dick can poke their eye out. Holy cow. And, I mean, and that's part of part of what I'm sure, you know, anybody who would read your book would, would read. Like, they read 32 things, and maybe they walk away with five of them. Like, oh, yeah, okay, those five, really, I get those five. And some other ones, maybe they still fall on those swords, but maybe they avoid five of them, right? So, I mean, that's the thing, and we're all human. We don't really follow direction very well anyways. But it's great that you guys have tried to capture the most, you know, common reasons that people fail, and hopefully they avoid some of them. <laughs> And uh, yeah, excited to talk through uh, some of the items on your list. Yeah, and so, so let, let let let's go ahead and start with your backstory and how you got to the point where you could write the Titanic effect and help people avoid failure. Sure. So uh, we actually met at our our first job out of college at a consulting firm in the D.C. area and worked in consulting for six years before coming back to school, getting our PhDs, and becoming professors. Uh, we're dating ourselves, but that now is uh, more than 20 years ago. Uh, and in those 20 years, we have been initially teaching entrepreneurs uh, in, in our students, but then getting them out into the community for experiential learning. That kind of led us into starting a couple companies ourselves uh, and becoming angel investors in, in early stage startups. And over that period of time, we were seeing this kind of repeated set of challenges and, and mistakes leading to the failure or, uh, or, or just a reduced trajectory of success uh, for these startups that we were working with. And we we're giving a, a big presentation in, in Indianapolis in, what was it, 2015 or so at the Innovation Showcase. Uh, we're working with Michael Cloran, who's a serial tech entrepreneur and our, our co-author. And we we're talking about, he was talking a lot about technical debt and how that's one set of mistakes that, that entrepreneurs make. And we were like, you know, there, there are parallels in the other areas where we teach for myself management with strategy and and uh, the, the people side of things. In Kim's case, the marketing side of things. So this idea of technical debt morphed into kind of a broader idea of these hidden debts, things below the surface that founders aren't aware of when they launch and are kind of navigating, you were talking about learning from failure and to paraphrase, you know, a smart entrepreneur learns from their own failure. A wise entrepreneur learns from the failures of others. And we were like, you know, if we can just capture a little bit of that and help some of these navigators, these, these entrepreneurs steer away from some of what we have, have come to call these icebergs or debtbergs. Um, if we can help them at, at least kind of glance off those bergs and instead of getting sunken uh, by them, um, you know, we, we've done something for the founding community out there. And as Matt Watson said, um, most people who read the book do uh, email us and tell us that they have a list. So of the 32, there's like three to five that pop up that are things that they're really wrestling with right now. And it helps give them clarity. And it's not like we're saying you absolutely can't do these things, avoid them. We're saying you should be aware of the challenges that come with this decision. And you're going to have to deal with this at some point in time. We all take on debt, right? You can't grow a business without debt. You can't grow your life without debt. So debt is okay as long as you know you have that debt and you don't pretend you don't. Well, in some ways, I think the the value of the book is its validation or reminder of like, as you mentioned, like, you know, it's like, I know my startup has problems. I'm not exactly sure what they are. I think it's this. I think it's that. It's whatever. And then I read the book and you're like, fuck. Yep. It's right. <laughs> it's right. The book is right. That's where you get from the show. Part, pardon? Yeah. 
no, I, I, we got a lot of early on the, where were you three years ago? You know, yeah. kind of almost the angry, this is, this was so straightforward. And yet, you know, we fell right into that trap. Yeah. Before, it's the we, before, we move too, before we move too far forward, I want to actually define technical debt because I think people have heard the term, but aren't really fully aware of, of its defense definition. So technical debt, which is also known as design debt or code debt, but can be related to other technical endeavors, is a concept in software development that reflects the implied cost of additional rework caused by choosing an easy or limited solution now, instead of using a better approach that would take longer. Now, technical debt, and you mentioned just, you say debt, and it could be experience-based in a lot of cases, because you don't you know, a startup doesn't come with an owner's manual. And well, maybe you wrote one, maybe it's the Titanic effect, there's your owner's manual, or at least part of it. But these things to avoid are are pretty key. Now we run into this a lot. So I talk to a lot of software founders, and they're trying to pay off that technical debt. And I said, well, how did you start there? Oh, well, I met a guy who I knew through someone else, who was the only person I know that said this was the right way to do it. And, you know, what are, and I think this is a very important topic. What are some of the things with technical debt that you've identified that you really have to stay away from? Yeah. So that is a part that our co-founder, I mean, our co-author also wrote, and we'd been hearing a lot about it, but I mean, it starts early on for making sure that you're solving the right problem. And so a real, on the technical side of things, you need to spend some time actually validating that this is a need people have and what kind of functionality that they need. And then the kind of second biggest mistake that happens is once you know that you have an actual problem to solve and you have some ideas around it, the most common thing that people do is they go and ask friendly voices to tell them what, that this is good and that we need this or that. And nobody puts their money up. And then, you know, sounds like a great idea, man. <laughs> it's a great idea. Dude, you're an entrepreneur. Woo! Uh, well, my, my favorite one with that is the people that are giving you valuations for your company, but aren't writing you a check that comes with right. that. Yep. Right. This is worth like 20 million bucks, man. You're rich. Cool. Do you want to invest? Nah, it's not the right thing for me, but yeah. Well, well, and as an aside, so I'm from New Jersey and, and you don't get a lot of like, yeah, well done. That's awesome. You get a lot more in your face. Like, dude, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. But you know, having come to the Midwest, like everybody's so damn friendly. They, they hate to say like your baby's ugly. And, uh, and yet it does happen. Yeah. We're not that's a whole different problem. That. Yeah, <laughs> I think Matt. I've actually think I've heard you call a baby ugly. My baby is not ugly. <laughs> no, I didn't say your baby. I meant someone else's. But no, that's I have a three-week-old baby. Oh, congratulations! Oh, that's wonderful. And and it is beautiful. I met him for the first time yesterday. So that was uh, congratulations. Matt has four boys. He is a subject matter expert at creating dudes. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, impressive. That's called dude debt. You, there's the title. <laughs> dude debt. Well, so, so going back to the technical, the technical debt thing, like it's a common problem with software where, for example, like I, we have a problem at Stackify, you know, my, my company, I'm the, the CEO of right now with something we've spent years building this thing and continuing to use it. And like, it just doesn't work the right way. And we continue to try and patch it and make it work. And it's like, it's time to pay down that technical debt. We're going to have to spend two months or whatever it is going to take to fix that shit. 
And there's just nothing we can do about it. It's like we've sunk all this time, energy, and resource into something that now has to be reworked. And that same um, theory applies to the other thing outside of software development, right? Like we spent all this time on this business plan or this partner strategy, or we hired all these employees and trained them to do this or whatever. And you're like, we waste Point a whole bunch of time and we got to start all over. All of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I'll give you a great example that we use in our book. We kind of follow the Randy Hetrick and TRX story. I don't know if you're familiar with TRX or those training straps, the yellow straps that you use to, uh-huh. yeah, I remember that. And we both do training. So Randy Hetrick was a Navy SEAL. Uh, and he came up with that idea with some parachute webbing when they were in uh, looking at, for pirates in the, the Southeast Asian area. And uh, he started TRX. As he started to scale, he got this order. So he had to move from hand assembly to actually outsourcing some of the components. So the first set of straps came in. He was like, yeah, we should probably test these before we send them out to people to exercise with. And the handles just cracked in his hand when he went to pull himself up. So, uh, you know, this the idea of kind of outsourcing uh, and physical products called quality fade that as you start to kind of extend relationships uh, to scale, it, it's not just software, it's it's physical product and, and other things as well. Okay, it's time for the next what what's the what's next on the the uh, fail boat maintenance list here? Well, so if we look at the marketing realm, I mean, there are a couple of big mistakes that we see happening in, in marketing. And we, we kind of the way we did is we used a metaphor for sailing with the Titanic. And um, we have the human ocean, the marketing ocean, the technical ocean, and the strategy ocean. And what we've tried to do is, first of all, define what these are and give some examples of when they happen, but also give some navigation tips. So things that if you encounter this, here's how you get away from it, or here's how you think about it in advance. Um, but you know, it's if it's hard to get validation for the technical side of things, it's also hard to get validation from the marketing side of things. And startups don't have money for lots of research. And so they sometimes just jump into uh, the marketplace and they haven't really done what some people suggest, which is figure out how to offer something that has incremental functional benefits. And we call that the customer value void. You like have a cool idea, but it's not really solving a pain point. And so people aren't really going to be willing to spend their money. And that comes from not getting close to the customer enough, not understanding what they're trying to accomplish and um, understanding what other people have done in the past so you don't make the same mistake. So that's kind of a big one that we see There's a rush with, forward with a, with a solution without really understanding the problem from the customer's perspective. And then the second kind of biggest mistake we see is that um, we're doing something completely new and unique and nobody has ever done this before. (laughs) Well, first of all, it's very unlikely, right? I mean, there's tons of ideas around me. Just because you didn't know about it doesn't mean it didn't occur to somebody. But also that means you have to create a market. You have to train people what to look for. You have to teach them what this product does, what attributes to evaluate, what the competitors are. And it's expensive. I mean, I spent some years at Eli Lillian Company and we would almost never launch a new drug, a new drug category because you're the one who has to pay for it. And that was Eli Lillian Company, it was a multi-billion dollar company. How are you as a startup going to train people who you are and how to evaluate your product category. 
it's impossible. Yeah, and I've, I, I've run into this with people that are pitching ideas before and they're like, I'm the only person doing this, which tells me in, in 2020 at this point, either that isn't, either they're uninformed and someone is doing it and they don't realize it, or there's really not a need for it. Um, you know, there are so many businesses in the world, you know, and like, and there, if you can truly be the first at something, like you said, there's a, well, I, I question the market validity, like, cause you know, but at the same time, if you can pull that off we often say there's riches in the niches. Um, and, and the, I quoted the esteemed and award-winning Matt, master Matt Watson in my book, where he's talking about, Hey, look, you go down, you go to a fancy neighborhood and you look at these houses, this guy imports ostrich feathers. This guy does something different. This lady does something different. And, you know, there are the people that have found the niches, but they are harder and harder to come by. So damn, I mean, that, that importing ostrich feathers was my next new thing. Yeah. <laughs> killed my and, dream. Uh, Watson might have a guy for that. You have a guy for that, right, Watson? I got a guy for everything or a gal. You see, see, see. Um, Okay. So marketing, you know, I think with marketing, that's really easy to fail. And I I think the thing that the, the most Titanic marketing failure that I see startups do is not actually do marketing. (laughs) Well, they get and and we've Watson's a a self-admitted product guy. And that's, that's what happens. So I'm the other side. I'm like, give me something shitty and I'll sell it. If that's what it comes down to. It's not that I that I pride myself on selling things that are shitty. It's that give me something, let me get out there and start talking to people, because I will deliver back what they're saying. This doesn't have this, this needs this, we, uh, we use this instead this isn't something we'd pay for. And that's really good information early. And then also it takes a while to get good marketing figured out and dialed in. And I have, so you had a bunch of different oceans. I've got three words that matter for marketing. Test, test, test. Just try in little small doses, try a whole bunch of stuff, see what works, and then really get laser sharp on the things that, that work. And I, I say, you should be looking for a crack. And when you find that crack, your job is to now shove an elephant through it. So, you know, but you without testing and looking for that stuff, it's difficult. And I, and I think that a lot of startups make that, that mistake early because as we've had many guests, especially recently say the best form of capital is revenue. Yeah, that form of non-dilutive capital is also revenue. So you know that that's the one way to really boost things forward. Sales cures ales. That's probably an even better metaphor than the Titanic is shoving an elephant in a crack. I it's uh, it's tough. Yeah, so we do. Well, that, 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 that's the thing because you have to rush to it when you find it. Because the thing is, is once you're doing something successful successfully you shot you've shot a signal flare up in the air you're going to attract other people imitators or or whoever so that's why you got to hurry up and get the elephant through the crack you can't wait for it to open wide up so it can just walk through so that's that's always the challenge but yeah we agree we say experiment test 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 um the one challenge though that comes with that and we call this the inconsistent positioning um uh detberg is that uh you you have to stop 
pivoting continually. Like, so you need a better idea of where to start your tests and you need some hypotheses of the next test. And you need to actually look at them as if they are hypotheses and tests. And we've seen like some startups that are like one quarter, you know, we do ABC and the next quarter we do DEF and the next quarter we do uh, whatever the next three alphabet letters are. And so over the course of like three years, they are known as 12 different things to their customer base. And so they've spent money acquiring leads for 12 different reasons. And they forget that the first people who raise their hands are not the same as the last people who raise their hands. And in fact, half their database probably needs to be thrown away because they don't do anything remotely similar to what they had promised before. So that's a mistake to try and avoid. Get smarter up front and have planned tests and hypotheses and know what the signals are. So if we see this, then it means we need to do that. And you're going to find those cracks faster and the cracks are going to be bigger and a little easier to shove the elephant through. So we are. I'd like, to, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to lay one of my favorite Matt Watson quotes in here before you, before you expand on that, Todd, I'm one pivot away from greatness. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And, and that very much uh, very consistent with our theme that, um, and, and we're big fans of the lean startup and that kind of mentality and getting out of the dorm room, getting into the market, getting, getting feedback. But the word you used, Matt, was test and test assumes there's some logic and, and hypothesis behind that. Uh, and, and you want to avoid what we call the pinball entrepreneur uh, who is always one pivot or one bounce away from, uh, from greatness because they just keep bouncing around based on whatever small feedback they get instead of kind of having an intentional journey of, of where they are and, and where they're heading. I kind of want to like make up a story about an entrepreneur named Tommy after the pinball reference, um, <laughs> yeah, there you, go. <laughs> you know, but, but you're right. And you know, that has a lot to do with it. it and it, when Matt was, you know, when I quoted Matt at one pivot away from greatness, that was in response to someone else that pivoting, 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 pivoting. And you, eventually you do have to, uh, decide a course and get moving. And at, you know, you, it doesn't mean you can't change later, but that, and that, and you're right. If you try to start raising money or gaining other types of support with that, you're the question you're going to get is, so what exactly do you do? What exactly do you do? Okay. What do we have next? I'm loving this. Yeah. So I actually wanted to zoom back out a little bit with, with your permission, talk about why the Titanic, right? So great failure story. Uh, but I wanted to kind of connect the dots when we started with this idea of uh, debtbergs or, or hidden debts, I should say, icebergs kind of came to mind as a visual, right? Because some of it is above the surface, but the majority is, is hidden. Uh, so when you think of icebergs and you think of failure, Titanic certainly comes to mind. Uh, and I was the the title guy. That's about as, as deep uh, as I get. So I was like, we're going to call this the Titanic effect, how to stop your startup from sinking. Uh, so that became the title of our first presentation. Uh, Kim was like, well, we should probably have a little more substance than that. You know, maybe a cool name, a little bit of an eye roll there. Um, but, you know, let's dig into this. And ironically, as we started to, as, as Kim started, then we both did more research on it. The uh, White Star Line, which was the builder and operator of the Titanic and the ship itself, fell into all of these different categories of debt. So we have examples of probably 20 of the 32 debtbergs we talk about that are directly relevant to the Titanic uh, and the White Star Line. So 
that raises, you know, those those oceans, the human ocean, the technical ocean, the marketing ocean that Kim just talked about, and then strategy, which is, is kind of the interrelationships between those. Um, but we haven't really talked much about the human side. And uh, I'll give a couple uh, that, that have kind of parallels to the Titanic. But uh, one is the investors and advisors that you bring on board and, and bringing the right advisors, bring the right investors that kind of complement uh, your skill set. Um, in the Titanic example, they ran out of money and brought on a new investor who made them change shipyards. Pretty big thing when you're building ships, right? And that, that new shipyard is the one that built uh, the Titanic and her sister ships, uh, two others. Um, because of the location and the building three ships at once, they ran out of high-quality riveters. They ran out of riveters who were able to build those ships. Uh, so the rivets in the area of the Titanic that hit the iceberg where they had the, the, the tear uh, were of substandard quality and were put in by hand, but not by expert riveters. Um, so, you know, people think about the iceberg with the Titanic, but there were these kind of interactive effects. Um, the other big one that I see in, in what we call the human ocean uh, is, is founder debt uh, and particularly allocating all the equity at the very beginning, assuming everybody's going to be contributing equally for the rest of the journey. We, we call it the curse of thirdsies, but you get three people sitting around a table with a couple beers or coffees or whatever. And they're like, "Woo, this is the next, you know, Facebook. Uh, we are all thir own 33 and a third percent. Um, you know, six months later, uh, Bob is, is, you know, off managing his job and family. He's got 33 and a third percent. Uh, and, and Alice and Ray are, are doing all the heavy lifting. So that giving equity too early, not vesting it and not having a plan for, for how to earn the equity as the venture moves forward. Uh, you, you don't want to you know, spend uh, all the equity at once when you're about one or two percent of the way through the journey. Well, and some people get startled when they go to raise capital and the investors then make the founders re revest their, their stock. Yeah. And that's yep. the reason why, like if this founder just flakes out and disappears and I invested a million dollars in this thing, you know, or whatever. And um, I had a friend that had a company and he had uh, three or four like co-founders that owned like varying levels of stock. And that was a suggestion I had to him was to, to make them all do vesting to make sure they stay on board and whatever. And that's something he did. Like that was actually good, 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 good. a good, uh, a good suggestion that was good for them. So yeah. we have, we've also talked a lot about the Oprah show uh, method of distributing equity. You get some equity, you get some equity, look under your chair, there's 10% <laughs> equity. And, but that's the thing is I see this a lot and they're just throwing it around and I'm like, wow, you know, this is like, you have no, you have no concept of what you've got, who's going to actually deliver, who's going to do this, who's going to do that. And especially when you have people that are founding things and it's not their full-time shit right away, yeah. you right. know, like you got five founders, one of them's working on it full-time, four of them have a job somewhere else. And three or four of those are never going to quit that job because they're just not entrepreneurs. They're not going to take the jump. They're not going to take the risk, or if they do it, they're going to show up with some weird salary demand that's going to make your investors' eyes roll. And I mean, Matt, we've seen that before. We've looked at pitches, and we're like, "Well, no wonder you're running out of money. You're paying yourself fifteen thousand dollars a month right. with no yeah. revenue." You know, so yeah, and uh, the the wealthy founder investor is flying around on private jets and filling that yeah. company. And I've seen that shit too. But, you know, speaking about the the equity, the other part of this that's interesting, um, and I've seen the flip side too, where nobody cares about the equity and then all of a sudden people think the company's worth something. 
And then it's a dogfight to why I didn't get equity or I didn't get as much or I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that because I didn't get this. And like that turns into the whole shit show too. I've seen that too. Well, we just, we just did an episode about that. And if you go back and look for the one titled the scrappy startup story. Uh-huh. Yeah. The um, brother. Uh, right? our, yeah. He, well, he was, well, he was talking about, uh, he was talking about they finally raised capital and then everyone got big dollar signs in their eyes and a lawsuit came out and all the capital went to pay for legal. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so investors yeah, love that, to pay for legal. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. He, according to him, the guy was understanding and kind, of, but it cleared, it set the table for what was about to occur next. But yeah, and that's that's that is uh, I I hear that a lot from people, and I think that that recovery of the equity, I think when you're doing that, you have to keep you have to really look. Some people aren't just don't really care about the equity either. Like they just really don't. It just it's not a driving force for them. I've been in that situation before, and then you end up buying it back, and it's like you know they it, you want people that are going to act like owners and founders if they're going to have equity, and not just people that want to be employees. And there's a difference. So if, if, if that's the way that someone you're starting your business wants to be, you don't need to give them a piece of the pie. You don't have to have the best of both worlds there. So, um, by the way, Matt, you get some equity. There. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're those people who come in and ask the really hard questions, you know, someone will say, Oh, and I gave equity to, for, you know, for this consultant who helped me set up my sales process. And I'm like, well, why didn't you pay for that? Well, I didn't why? have the money to pay for yeah. it. So you think they deserve, you know, 5% and for, for forever, for, you know, whatever happens and the down uh, at the end. I mean, even if you are going to do equity that way, you know, make it lots of little tiny bits, not, you know, the assumption of what it's worth today, or they don't think about the cumulative amount of equity. So it was just talking to someone this week who was, you know, we said, oh, we, I'm the lead, but then I've got these three people who are coming on board and, you know, I've retained like, you know, 35% and I gave away the rest. I was like, okay, but do you realize that any two of them could get together and overrule you? Well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. They're my friends. They're my friends. I'm like, yeah, they I've done it. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. And so, and then if there's liabilities, like who is paying for the liabilities. I mean, if they have equity, are, are they aware that then they're taking on the liabilities too? Have you had that conversation? Oh, I, I, I don't want to be a downer. Okay. Um, and by the way, Kim, Todd, you guys get some equity too, just cause you're here. So, <laughs> all right. Now, Thanks. Uh, now you owe all around. Debt, by the way. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that part. We'll get into that later. Let's not get into the negative stuff now, yeah. Matt, because we only think of sunny, sunny situations because we're not experienced. We don't realize that things do fail. Once again, with us today, Kim and Todd Saxton, award-winning professors, authors and fun startup hustle guests now we're gonna we're gonna take a break here for a second because what's really important in any startup is that they regularly play mixtape the game and it's time for that so you can go to mixtapethegame.com it's available on ios and android Mm -hmm. i'm gonna i pulled a card a real card matt and i pulled it just now matt thinks there's a conspiracy that i pull these cards days in advance and do painstaking research about my responses but that is not the case i actually just do it about an hour before the episode mount not days um <laughs> all right so 
I'm going to name a scenario. <laughs> what? It's true. And you get some equity, by the way, Matt. Just letting you know. The winner of mixtape is going to get some equity. All well, right. So for I, all the equity. One, gonna, one second. I have to share that I am at a disadvantage here because the first present that Todd ever gave me 30-something years ago was a mixtape. Okay. So he, he is into mixtape. I know nothing about it. So here we go. So I'm going to read a scenario and we're going to all name a song that we think goes best with that. Then we will vote. You may not vote for yourself and preferably not for Matt Watson. All right. What, what is the grocery cart with the squeaky wheels theme song? The grocery cart with the squeaky wheel. What theme song goes best with that? Hmm. It's kind of a tough one. I'm going with the wheels in the sky. Keep on turning. That's a good one. It's the best one I can come up with. Hmm. This is hard. All right. I'm scanning some of my lists, but I'm, nothing is coming to mind. Well, I could just share the first thought I had, and that might be as a great. Usually the best. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is, I can't get no satisfaction. There we go. We're halfway through it. Matt and Todd. Uh, I'm going to go with. I'm, regr uh, I'm regretting giving. I'm regretting giving you equity as long as it's taking this answer. To come out. All right. I'm going to go with Miley Cyrus, Wrecking Ball. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, is it, but is it? I mean, the shopping cart, it's coming in like a wrecking ball, baby. <laughs> Sing it, Matt. Sing it. Nah. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go actually with a, a Netflix show song and toss a coin to your Witcher, because you need somebody to come in and and take out that squeaky wheel. All right, good luck winning with that answer. <laughs> I had to be way worse. Okay. Than him. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna actually vote for Kim because I think the feeling of the squeaky wheel on the cart is applicable to most startups because every startup has some there's always something there's always some squeaky wheel somewhere and yeah I, I feel that way on many days I can't get I can't get no satisfaction yeah I like that I, one too I'm gonna go with Matt, Kim. Where's your vote yeah I'm going with Kim. And this is the first oriented thing she's ever won. Ever so. won. Uh, Todd, I was going to say, you, you, you do vote for Kim too because you should because yeah. your vote is officially meaningless at this <laughs> point. Congratulations, Kim. Woohoo! some equity and something we haven't started yet, but you'll get it. So, okay. Um, so for those of you listening, go to titanicaffect.com. Check out information about their book. You can buy it on Amazon. Uh, have a little birdie told me that an audible version of it may be coming at some point soon. So look out for both. All right. So back to failures. And after losing mixtape, I feel like one. So what's our, what's our next arena of failure uh, that the Titanic effect might help us avoid? So we talk uh, in, in uh, about the strategy ocean, again, those kind of integration of things. Uh, and, and I think you talked about a little bit the contrast between uh, the two of you and your orientation. Uh, and, and we call it incomplete integration, meaning that the startup doesn't really have a plan or a strategy to integrate the product development with the marketing and the funding and with the right people. And we tend to see 
technical founders, product-oriented founders, engineers. Uh, we work a lot with uh, physicians and, and healthcare entrepreneurs, and they tend to get way ahead on the product development before they really invest in upfront market research and, and putting things in front of the customer, et cetera. Um, you know, we, we've had entrepreneurs come to us with having two to $300,000 in invested in either uh, an app development or, or some kind of software or even, you know, physical product or something without ever having gone out to a customer. Uh, so that, that imbalance on the flip side, the sales and marketing oriented are out there selling something they don't even know they can make or or have the uh, the technology to make. So those those two, you know, product market fit is a combination of the right product, the right technology, making sure you can build it, understanding what that's like, and the market, right? That that uh, the the market side is have you identified the right segment, someone who who likes it and is willing to pay for it, uh, and we see startups. In, in, in either camp where they're unbalanced and, and not integrated across those two oceans uh, and therefore that become kind of destabilized. So that's one from the strategy ocean I, I want to share. Yeah. I call them wonky. Yeah. And there's a book all about a kind of product market uh, fit that I recommend called Crossing the Chasm. Yes. It kind of goes deeper into that specific subject yeah. that if people are struggling with that, that I'd recommend too. Yeah, Jeffrey Moore. We also talk about that as there are different growth patterns in industries and you need to understand where the growth pattern is. And so if you're early in a crossing the chasm type of growth pattern, then no matter what you do, you're not going to get lift. And so you have to instead think about how do we change the macro environment, which has been one upside of COVID, right? I mean, we've seen a bunch of industries now that are across the chasm, like telemedicine you know it was it's been really hard to get any traction on telemedicine until until now right and the question then becomes what happens after this but yeah yeah and and still in this subject matter you know on this topic i think one of the most basic things that startups really fail at and i've been guilty of this in the past is just on the the uh, the simplest uh, you know, and uh, comparison to all the stuff that that Todd was mentioning it was just that simple failure to understand your own path to revenue. And um, you know, the hey, it's, so in six months we'll have a product, we'll have ten percent market share. I'm expecting to have thirty thousand dollars a month in recurring revenue. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you're like, wow, man, that's a lot of stuff to do in six months. Have you started any of it? No, we're still seeking funding, but we're feeling pretty good that this is going to happen. And, I'm, you know, the, it, it, I just overall that that first dollar in the account, and I don't mean capital dollar, I meant revenue, like actually selling something is a hell of a lot harder to get. It, it, well, if you're selling software, it's really hard. Well, it's and, really hard. And uh, in this day and age, it's really difficult to raise money from an investor if you don't have some kind of revenue. Right. Yeah. Most people will not invest if you don't have an actual paying customer. And going back, there's a few investments I wouldn't have done that I shouldn't have done based on that criteria. And most of those companies failed. Yeah. We know a local investment group that's actually said that until you have five paying customers and the top management team has had to close at least three of them. Right. So that they know. Uh, the uh, I, right. Right. And so, you know, with, uh, I'm also the founder of Gigabook. It took us over two years to get our first paying user. By the way, she's still a user 
And after a couple years of that, we gave her what we called the golden ticket. We're like, cause, cause we weren't, she shouldn't have been paying us. It was, it was a shitty product when we first launched it, you know, and, and she put up with so much crap and, and did, you know, gave us so much great feedback, but that's the point. Get people in and, yeah. and then ask them like, we, and the lady's name is Sandy Jewel. Thank you, Sandy. Cause and I had her phone number. I'd be like, tell what do you hate about this right now? And she'd tell us, she'd, you know, she'd say straight up exactly what the issue was. And it was very useful. Um, it helped us prevent building things that people wouldn't want or need as well. But yeah, that, uh, that path to revenue. And like I said, we gave her a free lifetime subscription later because it just felt like the right thing. to Good. Because hey, I want to be clear that you weren't suggesting people give their customers equity. Because that's probably a bad idea. Oh, yeah, maybe. Well, in some, you could in some cases. That'd be <laughs> that's weird. There, but, but yeah, and then, you know, that's, a, look, it's going to take two to three times longer and cost two to three times more. Um, you know, when I was at, taking classes at your fancy business school, there, there was some funny things because, you know, school and reality are, are two different realities. And, you know, then a school like Kelly, Kelly School of Business teach you, teaches you how to very effectively create plans and business plans and projections and stuff like that. And then there was one thing that I always do that I wasn't taught there. I always put a line in that says, oh, shit. <laughs> and people look at it and they'll be like, what's this oh shit line? And it's a 1% of your revenue. I said, that's for all the things that will say, oh shit, we didn't think about that. We didn't plan for that. We didn't know we need that. Or we didn't know this would go wrong. Oh shit. And that's that, you know, that planning thing. I think when it comes to strategy as well is you have to have an oh shit line in your plan. Because if you're running things so tight that one oh shit moment well, is that your iceberg? Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's the whole thing. And, and by the way, you heard it here first, the Titanic sank due to high levels of technical debt. And others. And others. Yeah. Um, yeah. Todd has a great way of explaining what should be done to business plans. And I'll see if he wants to share that with you because um, he has taught those business plan courses in the past. And instead, the advice that we give. We, we may have some colorful reactions to that. Let me know. <laughs> but yeah. Go ahead. It's not a plan. It's a. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is kind of the whole roadmap analogy, right? That. Uh, that's what people talk about is, hey, you need a roadmap, and that's how people think about a, a plan. But the reality is it's a lot more like a set of sailing instructions. You still do need a goal. You need that kind of vision of what you're trying to get to, that paradise island. Um, but rather than thinking about the plan as a roadmap where you know point A, you know point B, you're literally kind of looking at a map kind of thing and saying, hey, where do we need to pull off for gas? That's totally unlike the real startup journey. It's a lot more like being out there in a ship where the whole crew is responding and adapting to the tides, to the wind, to storms that come up. Uh, now, you, that doesn't mean you lose sight of the fact that there's a paradise island you're trying to get to. That's what's going to motivate people and keep them on board. Um, but, but you have to kind of lose that idea that the business plan maps out your series of decisions over a three to five year period and, and gets you somewhere. So it, planning is really important. The plan itself, and this is paraphrasing Winston Churchill, uh, the plan itself is inconsequential. 
Yeah. It, well stated. Yeah, I, like I was honestly expecting a different response, Todd, because, you know, concerning talking to professors from a business school and that's that disconnect. And actually, one of the things I really enjoyed about uh, taking classes for, through Kelly School of Business was that most of the professors had practical application. And I mentioned one professor that stood out. His name was Bob Graham. He was the former COO of Steak and Shake. And I love the fact that he would bring re real situations in, not just like, and we've talked so much about that plan. Like, don't spend so much time on like you're planning for year four, but you're on day 60. Right. And yeah, I love to see those five-year financial yeah. statements uh, you know, when you're pre-revenue, it's like, come on, man. Well, we say, we say that, that when I hear the word projection for me, projection equals wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like that's just the, cause it is. And it's, you know, you're trying to come close and, and paint a picture of what something could be, but the whole world of agile, whether it's development or business development or anything is about much like you said, having the, the crew on deck, adapting to the tides, the winds, the storms. Like I think early, it's just important to know that we're heading west. Right. You know, like let's get closer to the island and then we'll worry about getting into port. Uh, but Matt, do you have any comments on, pl on business plans? Because I know you're passionate about not reading people's 60 pagers. The plan is there is no plan. Sometimes and didn't everyone have a plan until they got punched in the face? That's, isn't that another favorite? That's isn't that a Mike Tyson quote? quote? The, you know, it's really hard to overly plan and then also have no plans. And it's really easy to go both directions, which are both bad. And I'm guilty of both. And, you know, actually one of the things I'm working on this week for at Stackify is planning. And it's just trying to work with my teams and have them do a better job of, of planning and because they get, uh, people get so hung up on what is going on today and what I did yesterday that they don't think very strategically about what I need to do even just next week. And, you know, people get so hung up into being busy, but not being productive and, you know, being productive, you know, getting to the goal of where you're trying to get to. And, uh, you know, a certain amount of planning is really needed, but, you know, the worst thing people can do is overly plan and be rigid and think that, oh, exactly 11 months from now we'll be here because you can guarantee you won't be there. But, you know, at least heading toward that North Star, to your point, you just got to keep going that direction and actually put in the right efforts to continue to go that direction. And so many people just go sideways. Yeah. They spend all this effort, they do all these things, and they just continue to go sideways. They never actually move forward. And software developers are not notoriously bad about this specifically developers. And sometimes they just don't move at all. I mean, so that's the other extreme, right? And so we're big advocates of having some plan. Again, not that 60 page plan. I like a whiteboard with post-it notes about where we're headed in, you know, the next week, three weeks, six months, whatever, um, so that you have people that are focused. And as we said before, it's not pivoting if it is pivoting, but you, it's not like that pinball pivoting. If you have a test plan, if you said, we think this is our best hypothesis, these are our second and third hypotheses. Let's try this. Let's evaluate it. Um, and then let's see what we do differently. So there, there is, has to be some sort of plan so that you can get to tactics so that you can actually take a step forward. Yeah. Otherwise you're just throwing spaghetti up against the wall and hoping that it sticks, which I didn't realize until I went to college was the way that some people tested if this pasta was done is they would throw it up on the ceiling. And if it didn't fall down, That's it was how I do it. I, the wall. 
It works. It's actually, it's, it, it really does. It works. It works. But, yeah. Over time, it, if you eat a lot of pasta, it can get a little gross, but you know, that's right. <laughs> Well, the wall will, but uh, yeah. you don't eat the pasta that's stuck to the wall. Oh, oh okay. okay. Now, the, the, in, in Congress, with everything we just said, some, one of the things, sometimes people get so stuck on the plan that all right, there's a, this old sales parable or story about a shopkeeper that never opens the store for business because he's too busy cleaning it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that that some people get so restrictive with their plan that sometimes they, they, they're busy cleaning the store and they never open it for customers. And, you know, that, that's part of it is like, you have to, on some level, get something out there for sale, do a lot of different stuff. If all you're doing is creating the plan, you're also not enacting the plan in this case. And so we, we actually borrow from a training metaphor from mountain biking for that. And we, we talk about the now, the next and the navigation. So in mountain biking, uh, you you have to be very aware of your immediate surroundings because you could fall at any time. You want to know the rocks are, snakes, et cetera. Uh, and then the next is like scanning 10 to 15 feet ahead so that you know when you're going to be making turns and adjust your speed. But you also have to have a navigation plan. You have to have an idea of how long you're going to be out, if it's a circular route, how much food and drink you're going to be taking with you, et cetera. And, and I think that maps nicely to what you're talking about with startups that you need to be spending about 40 to 50% of your time on the now, engaging in those activities that are moving you forward. Uh, but you also need to periodically step back and, and engage in that navigation. We estimate, uh, partly based on research, partly based on personal experience, that that's about half a day a week that you're stepping back and saying, are we actually still heading toward that paradise island and, and doing the right things? And we see some founders that are completely kind of gazing off into the distance uh, and, and never open in their shop. Uh, but but then we see others that are, you know, all activity and, and no outcomes or because they're madly scrambling, you know, emptying the garbage every day themselves and and not really figuring out if they're they're moving their startup forward. So once again with us today, Kim and Todd Saxon, professors at the IU Kelly School of Business, authors of The Titanic Effect. This has been very interesting and engaging. For those of you that are listening, if you want to learn more about Startup Hustle, check us out. Find us at, at Startup Hustle Podcast on Instagram. You can also check us out on YouTube. Go to fullscale.io, see more, learn more about what Matt and I do to try to help tech businesses avoid failure when it comes to hiring programmers and developers. So we end episodes of Startup Hustle with what we call the Founders Freestyle. We're going to pivot that today into the Failure Freestyle. Whoa. Wow. And I, and I think this perfectly, there you go. See, I'm being agile, Matt. I'm being agile. By the way, Matt, you get some more equity. Um, and we'll start with Kim and I'd like to go around. We'll go Kim, Todd, Matt, and then I'll, I'll finish. But what's something, what's one point that you can give a founder or entrepreneur, anything you have to say regarding or avoiding failure? Well, so I think you also can sometimes redefine failure. So I think for some people, failure is like such a horrible thing that they you know, can't even embrace the idea. But, you know, failure, if you can't hit that ultimate goal, redefine it to a more intermediate goal. And I always use a training metaphor for this. So Todd and I, for fun, train for Ironman triathlon. And so like maybe I was supposed to go out and do a nine mile run. And if I don't do nine miles, I could fail or I could you know, reset that target a little lower so that the day doesn't look like a total loss. And 
I got something accomplished. So, you know, if you can't get that stretch, then be comfortable redefining so that it doesn't look like a horrible failure. That's good. Todd, you're up. Yeah, my, mine would actually be related to that. And this is something I struggle with myself, um, which is is to fail, but then forgive. And part of that is forgiving yourself that you didn't make that journey, but but move on. And part of that is forgiving the others around you who may have been involved and not uh, kind of dwelling on the fact that things didn't work out uh, and really clear your head and move on. You, you give yourself a time of, of, of grieving and blaming and, you know, kicking yourself um, but then you, you've got to move on and leave that baggage behind. Uh, and part of failure, again, is, is learning from that uh, and making better decisions next time. So think about it in, in that framing. Uh, it's been a learning moment. And uh, your next venture, your next idea, your next pivot, uh, your next punch in the face, uh, you're going to be stronger as a result. So I think one of my favorite tips about failure is about, you know, really fighting against trying to do too much and too many things. So many so many people want to create like a software product or whatever or service and they want to do everything. They think that like I'm going to do this and do this and do that and do all these things, which greatly overcomplicates everything. And it's one of the struggles I've had with my company, Stackify. We have like five different products on one platform and we probably would have been more successful if we did one of the five. And it's so easy when you're at early stage to say yes to every customer and do all of these things, but it, it grossly makes everything more complicated. Your product is harder to use. It's harder to sell. It's harder to support. It's harder to train people on. It's just people get confused about what you do. It's just everything about it is harder. And if I have any advice for people, it's to, to pick something simple and be really, really, really world-class at that simple thing. You're probably way likely, more, way more likely to be successful and you can always do more later. Like restaurants don't open and serve every type of food. Amazon started selling books, right? Like you got to start somewhere. You can always grow, but start simple. I think well said, Matt. Uh, before I go, once again, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io. Let us help you avoid failure. How about that, Matt? New tagline. I dig it. Um, all really great stuff. You know, Matt, I'm going to parlay off what you said a little bit. I was watching the McDonald's, the move founder about mm -hmm. the McDonald's yeah. story. Yeah. And at one point they looked at this and literally said, Hey, we make all of our money and people are all buying, uh, shakes, uh, hamburgers and fries. And they have a huge menu and they said, well, we should only serve this. And the one brother says to the other, he says, well, what do you mean? There, people want selection. He's like, apparently they don't because they're only ordering these things. He said, well, we can't do that. And they said, well, why can't we? There's no reason we can't. Um, so, you know, I think Matt's right. I think especially in the startup phase, you got to get good at something. If you're trying to get, I see this a lot. If you're trying to be good at five or six different things, you're going to be great at none of them. You will be average at best across the spectrum. And that's if you're lucky. Um, another, th and then my final point is I, I really love the mountain bike analogy. Um, and there's one thing that was absent there. The mountain bike doesn't have a rear view mirror. Mm -hmm. it, it, you don't, you shouldn't spend all your time looking in it is the point. And if you were looking in a rear view, and the, part of the reason that would be really dangerous on a mountain <laughs> bike, because if you were looking in the rear view mirror, you might drive off the cliff. Right. And I, when it comes to failure, you can, you learn from it. I like the fail and forgive mentality. Like, Hey man, it happened. Unless you, unless your startup is building a time machine and you're waiting for it to become effective, you're not going to go back and, and change that. So get over it. 
move forward and don't spend time looking in the rearview mirror because you're not going to see what's on the, in the periphery and you're certainly not going to see the road ahead of you. And you're probably going to miss a few turns along the way too. So, you know, failure is part of it. it. Any any story about anybody that's been successful from invention to innovate, all of it, has a long train of failure. You know, Edison didn't get the light bulb right on the first try. I mean, it happens. And you're going to, and if you haven't got past that moment, where you're ready to flip a coin to see whether you're going to quit or not, then you probably haven't tried hard enough. So you just got to keep moving and just keep moving. So now all of that said, um, I've got so many things to do. I've got to go create a cap table for all this equity that we gave away uh, <laughs> during this episode. But Kim, Todd, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to have you back sometime. This I know we barely scratched the surface on all the content that you've got, but you know, I, I'm a, for me, uh, back aboard the fail boat. See you guys next time. <laughs> I ordered, yeah, thanks. I, we were looking forward to this. It's been great. I ordered the book, so maybe we'll have another episode just about more of the book. So, all right. Thank you. Are we going to have movie night and the book club, Matt? Maybe. You'll have to actually read the books. All right. We're out. See you next time. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.